With the invention of the DVR, one of the saddest implications of that has been the lack of commercials. We tend to fast forward through them and miss them, um, which is wonderful in many ways, I know. A true gift from the Lord, I think. But commercials sometimes are fun. I know the Super Bowl is coming in a number, in a couple of weeks, and a lot of people, my wife included, only tunes in just to watch the commercials. My kids as well. Um, they suffer through the football game uh, in order to watch the commercials. Um, and maybe you're like that today. I mention commercials because commercials are helpful because they often give you a bit of the pulse of our culture. Um, people don't put spend millions of dollars on commercials uh, if they're not going to be watched. Commercials are aimed at the audience to watch them and to then buy the product that they're selling. Commercials communicate what we value and what we disvalue, what we think important and what we think really not that important. For example, you might find commercials that uh, have little robotic vacuums that you turn on and it runs through the house and vacuums for you. That's a culture that, that desires convenience, a culture that desires uh, the ease of life. We, we want to be the Jetsons, if you will. Uh, we, we want life run by robots so we don't have to do anything. That's just a small taste of perhaps what our culture enjoys. But as you think about the commercials, and then you think about the shows that correspond to those commercials, ones that are popular today, ones that gain a lot of attention, uh, they also tell you about our culture. They teach you about what we value in our context here. And one of the things that I've noticed that we tend to be very obsessed with as a culture that crosses generational and economic lines is an obsession with redeeming. Our culture, for a number of reasons and for a number of decades, has had the obsession of taking something old and broken and restoring it back to new. Consider the kind of entertainment people watch that communicate and restore those kind of things. We watch and consume stories of redemption, stories of drug addicts who have been incarcerated and then set free and serve their time and, and change their lives. Their lives are redeemed. We celebrate redeeming that which is lost. Consider the popularity of home renovation shows uh, from all sorts of renovation shows. You know, there's fixer uppers everywhere, right? Uh, we love to take what is old and broken and restore it. Maybe you individually like to do that. You buy an old home and try to fix it up and make it look new again. We take what is broken down and unwanted, ready for the trash heap, and we restore it to life. We redeem it, making it new again. Just the other day, I was, my wife was watching Food Network, and I saw how many shows were devoted to that, and, and other food shows that are devoted, like Worst Cook in America, taking the worst and trying to make something better out of it. I know a few of you like Gordon Ramsay and his cooking shows. And he takes those kitchens and they are gross and rats and all kinds of other things running around them. And in 24 hours, turns them around and makes them a success again. Taking the worst, the broken, and restoring it, redeeming it. Friends, we like 
those kind of stories. We're drawn to those kind of stories. Something broken, something lost, something redeemed. But why? Why are we drawn to such stories? Why are they so popular? I think it goes deeper than entertainment. I think there's something in our DNA, something in us as created beings that recognize that something is wrong. Now, we may may not be able to put our finger on it. We may not be able to say, oh, that's the problem. But even in a secular society, even among non-Christians, your non-Christian neighbors and friends, they recognize something is wrong with this world. Now, they'll come to different conclusions. We're polluting it, and therefore it's kill, we're killing it. Or perhaps a number of other reasons. The world wasn't meant, though, to grow old. The world wasn't meant to wear out. The world wasn't meant to be corrupted with rust and decay and disease. These, the Bible tells us, are invasions from an outside source. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Meaning that the creation didn't want it. Because of him who subjected it. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves We who are the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our world loves the story of redemption because it was created not to grow old and weary. God's story of redemption is hardwired, if you will, into the DNA of all of creation. So that even the trees and the birds and the the animals, everything is groaning under this corruption, longing for redemption. Because deep down inside, we know That we've been subjected to decay. We grow old. We wear out. And we trust that's not right. And the Bible confirms that. And we want to fix what is broken because deep down inside, under all the layers of sin, our flesh knows that this world is not right. That it's broken. We trust, though, unlike the secular society around us, that we cannot fix it. No amount of carbon depletion is going to stop this world from, from one day burning. No amount of effort that we put into it will ever fr- fix our greatest problem. 
Someone else more powerful than us must do it. This is why we need redeemed. And that's the subject we want to consider this morning, that of redemption. What does it mean? What does it mean for us? Before we do, I want to just summarize where we've been. Uh, We are on a journey through this letter of Ephesians, a letter written by Paul to the churches in Asia Minor that was circulated among the churches to build these congregations up, to encourage them to, to persevere, to teach them what it meant to be a church, what it meant to be a congregation, how to love one another. And Paul has begun this letter with a eulogy to God. Now, often we use that word in the context of funerals, uh, but eulogies are often uh, done in other contexts, particularly in the Bible, to express blessedness or to eulogize God, to give glory to God, to, to spotlight characteristics of God, to praise God for who he is and what he's done. And what Paul has done here is crafted a, an intricately long praise, praising the Father for his work of electing us, praising the Son for His work in our redemption and inheritance, praising the Spirit for our eternal security. And we are in the midst here of that four parts that we've considered last week. We began by praising God for choosing us in Christ, verses 3 through 6. Today we'll consider praising God for redeeming us in Christ Next week, verses 11 through 12, praising God for our inheritance that we receive in Christ. Your 401k ain't got nothing on your eternal inheritance. So, you know, if you lost a lot of money in December, it's all good. You, you still got a lot in heaven. And you praise God finally for our eternal security in Christ. The security that the Holy Spirit, we've been sealed, we're told, for a day, for, our, for the day of redemption. And so this morning, we're going to consider that second point of Paul in this long praise in verses 7 through 10. I invite you to turn there if you haven't already in your Bible, page 976 in the Black Pew Bibles. If you're using a Red Pew Bible, look at the table of contents, you'll get there. Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose. Which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven. And things on earth. I summarize Paul's point in the title. Praise God for redeeming us. A fuller definition or point might be this. As Christians, we should continually praise God for redeeming us in Christ according to the riches of his grace. As Christians, our lips and lives must be continually praising God for our redemption. And the purpose of our time this morning is to, is to give us some fuel 
for our prayer and praise life. Where when you gather with us on the Lord's Day and then throughout the week, that you sing praises like you believe them to be true. We sing so loudly because we believe so firmly that what we sing is true about us and about God. And so this passage, I think, really fuels our prayer and praise life by showing us our present freedom from sin and guilt. When we understand what it means to be redeemed, it gets us excited. It gets our lips opening, our hearts joyful. And in our text this morning, we're going to look at two points centered around this theme. And Paul outlines really two reasons why we praise God for our redemption. We praise God for redeeming you in Christ. That's the first point we see. And secondly, we praise God for revealing His perfect plan of redemption. Redemption and revelation are sort of the two points that we'll consider. First, the redemption in verses 7 and 8. And revelation, something is revealed through our redemption in verses 9 and 10. So you just want to write down those two words. Those might serve you well as you think. First, we see in verses 7 through 8 that Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus to praise God for redeeming them with the death of Christ. He's saying, praise God for redeeming you through the death of Jesus. Now, I want to note a a number of points here under this heading. So sort of four sort of sub points. I don't often emphasize them, but they're really good. Not my sub points, but what they point to. Um, and, and I think it's helpful. Number one, I want you to see your present redemption. Present not as in Christmas present or birthday present, but present as in today. Notice what Paul writes. He says, in him we have redemption. We have redemption. Now, before we jump into this, what is redemption? Redemption means to buy back. To purchase one's freedom from slavery or captivity. A slave might be redeemed by being bought out. A captive of war, a prisoner of war might be set free because the, his country pays off his captors. Of course, one of the greatest Old Testament illustrations of the story of redemption is the Israelites' Freedom from slavery in Egypt. We are told in Exodus 1 that the Israelites had been enslaved for 400 years under a cruel and evil leader. The Pharaoh in Egypt had punished the Israelites. They were once free in the land of Goshen, but over that 400 year period, they were enslaved and put into forced labor But God in his grace came and sent a deliverer, a redeemer, Moses. Who would free them from their slavery. 
And that redemption, that story would be the the story of redemption that, that all of the Old Testament was painted upon. That story was told over and over and over again through the wisdom, through the Proverbs, through the Psalms, through the prophets, all throughout the Old Testament. That story, that was an old, old story of redemption. And it was told again and again and again because it spoke about what they had received in and through God. As Exodus 15 tells us, in your unfading love, you will lead The people you have redeemed in your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. Moses's point there is that God was the one who purchased their freedom. He won their freedom by destroying the gods of the Egyptians through those plagues. Or as the writer in 2 Samuel says, and who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, the one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself and to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. The word redemption, as I said, means Freedom from slavery. And Paul is using a word here that in the mind of the Ephesian church would have transported them in time and taken them back there to the shore of the Red Sea where the seas were parted and the the Israelites marched through and the enemy was destroyed as evidence of God's redemption in their life. He had won their freedom. And Paul now applies what God did there to the lives of Christians today. Now look again what he says. He says that you have redemption. He does not say that you could have had redemption. You might have redemption or you will have redemption. Throughout this eulogy, Paul is using sort of a generic verbal idea. He's he's just saying you've been chosen in Christ. You have an inheritance in Christ. You've been secured in the spirit. But here Paul shifts to the present tense for a reason. Because he wants the church to know and believe and trust in the enduring nature of their redemption. Now, yes, as Paul will say in in chapter four and verse 30, that our redemption is already But not yet. We wait for the fullness of our redemption. But here Paul emphasizes the present reality of redemption. That means, brother and sister, this morning that if you are in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Christ, you have been redeemed. You have been set free from slavery to sin and Satan. And that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a present reality. It's true today. We'll think about the implication of that in just a moment. But I want you to revel in the reality that you are set free. Free indeed. You are today. Through Christ. Paul writes in the. Companion letter to Ephesians, the letter of Colossians, who we we heard from earlier from our brother Rod in Colossians chapter one and verse 13. Paul says it this way. God 
has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The language there, do you see the the picture that Paul paints? Slavery. You, You were in another one's kingdom, someone else's kingdom. His name was Satan. You dwelt in his kingdom. You were bound in his rule. And God came in. He burst down the wall. He rescued you, delivered you, and transferred your citizenship. The language Paul uses in Colossians. He takes and says, you're no longer citizens. I've redeemed you. I've bought your citizenship. Now you're mine. And you are my sons. You see the picture of redemption? It's a transfer of ownership. You've been freed from one master to a great master. From one who is a tyrant and who wanted to destroy you to one who hopes and will bless you for all of eternity. God has done this. It is God's work from beginning to end. This is our redemption. And if we've been redeemed, if our freedom has been purchased, Well, what was the price that was paid? Well, Paul tells us, look again at verse 7. In Christ, we have redemption through Christ's blood. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute. As you're reading your Bible, I know sometimes in a text like this, these pronouns can get you lost real easy. You're not committing heresy if you were to jot down in your Bible who the, what the, who the reference is to some of these pronouns, okay? Just so you can keep track. Often, I'll read that way, just to keep in my mind, who, who is he talking about? Uh, in Christ, we have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of God's grace, right? The price paid, Paul tells us, for your redemption was the blood of Christ. Now, Paul does not mean literally at the foot of the cross was a basin that collected this blood. Then it was delivered to whoever was going, you know, who owned you. That's not what Paul is implying here. Paul here is using a metaphor for the bloody death of Christ on the cross. The blood of Christ is a metaphor to the sacrificial death of Christ. His atoning sacrifice. The substitutionary atonement where Christ died in your place. We say it this way. He lived the life you should have. And died the death you deserved. What Christ is doing through his life. Is paying the penalty that your sin rightly deserved. God is too just. To just forgive and forget. What I mean by that. Is that God doesn't just look at our sin and say. Ah you know. I know you made a mistake, it's okay. He doesn't do that at all. The Bible tells us that God requires for for Him to be a just God, for punishment to be completed. He must punish sin. God must punish our sin. He cannot let it go. If He does, He will not be just. And so what God does through Christ is punishes Jesus for your sin. So that at the end of the day, when Christ says it's finished, 
it means it's finished. There's no penalty left to pay. So if you're a Christian this morning, Christ's death satisfied, absorbed all of God's wrath that your sin and my sin rightly deserved. Jesus' blood was the currency that won your freedom. His death for your life. That is the great exchange that took place on the gospel for all those who would repent and believe in Christ. Well, this is what the author of Hebrews reflects in a, in a probably well-known passage. Hebrews 9.22 Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. See, all the way back to the garden, something has to die to cover your sin. In the Garden of Eden, we know well that Adam and Eve sinned. And we know that God punished them for sin. And an often neglected point in the story in Genesis 3 is what happens after God punishes Satan, Adam, and Eve. We often skip over it and get right to Cain and Abel going at it. And we miss a, a subtle point that Moses makes. First... Adam calls Eve, Eve, and says, the mother of all living. And we know from the story that they were told that if you commit this sin, you're going to die. Adam, are you confused? How is she going to be the mother of living? She's the mother of death. It's because God had promised them that another would come and die for their sin. More than that, you'll remember, we all know the fig leaves, right? We, we remember growing up learning about Adam and Eve were naked, and then they were ashamed of their nakedness, and they covered it with fig leaves. They tried to cover their own shame and guilt. But in the story of Genesis 3, we are told that God makes them animal skins to cover their nakedness. Something had to die. To cover their guilt and shame. You see, that's God hardwiring into the story of humanity, the story of redemption. Something dies to cover your guilt and shame. And the story of the gospel and our redemption through Christ is that Christ died in our place because we would never be able to pay God back why we've been learning that song his mercy is more what riches of kindness he lavished upon us his blood was the payment his life was the cost we stood neath a debt we could never afford our sins they are many but his mercy is more paul says it's through the blood of christ that's the currency that purchased your redemption well what resulted from it i've hinted at it Look at verse 7 again. Who knew there was so much there? Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. What Paul does there is sets up that phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses in apposition to redemption. In other words, what Paul is saying that this is the result of your redemption. God doesn't just go purchase you know, a bunch of free people, just free a bunch of people, like sets them free. 
No, no, there's a goal in mind. There is a purpose in mind. And the purpose was our freedom from sin and guilt. Paul uses the word here, trespass, which is really the same word as sin. A trespass is a willing, deliberate, disobeying of God's clear command. In Romans chapter 1 and 2, Paul lays out the case that everyone, everywhere, in all time, is guilty of breaking God's law. There's no innocent man living on an island. Everyone is guilty. And so everyone is guilty and everyone needs forgiveness then. And that's what Paul points to. That we have been freed from sin and from guilt. This is what God is doing through the gospel. Is delivering us, freeing us, and giving us forgiveness of sin. How does God forgive sin? By punishing someone else. By punishing Christ in our place. Our only part in the gospel is to turn from our life of sin. To stop going our way and to go God's way through Christ. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, that is Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. Christ bore our penalty that we might be set free. And that we might be forgiven and made righteous. Do you know the forgiveness that you could have through Christ? Guilt is a funny thing. It doesn't go anywhere. And every once in a while, it comes back. And we can give ourselves to man-made means to cover our guilt and shame. Fig leaves sewn together. We can try to forget, hope that time will lessen the pain of our sin. The truth is, it never goes away. But it does become heavier as time goes by. The burden of guilt grows as we give ourselves to covering our way. But through redemption in Christ, you've been set free from the guilt of sin. You've been forgiven, so forgive yourself. You've been forgiven, so forgive others. You've been forgiven. Your sins have been cast as far as the east is from the west. And if Christ paid your penalty, why is it that you pray to God as if he's still angry at you and your sin? You throw contempt upon Christ when you're unwilling to forgive yourself. You throw contempt on Christ when you're unwilling to forgive others. And you throw contempt on Christ when you do not trust that you have been covered. That the shame of your sin has been covered through the blood of Christ. 
Finally, here in verses 7 through 8, we see the basis of your redemption. It is in God's abundant grace, abundantly given. Why did God redeem you? Were you worthy? Was there something about you that was worthy? No. Paul tells us, look at verse 8, 7 again, excuse me, verse 7, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The word there, according, means the standard, the basis of. The standard of God's redemption is his grace. When God assessed, who shall I set free? Who shall I redeem? Well, all we have to do is go to the Old Testament and look at Israel again. What was so impressive about them? They were a, they were a hot mess. They had a lot of problems. Their forefathers were a mess. But God chose to set his love upon them to redeem them. And did you hear what, what 2 Samuel said? Of all the nations you chose to redeem, this one nation. Why did he do that? Because of his grace. To display his grace. To put himself on display. You see, if we're saved by anything other than grace, God doesn't get the credit, we get the credit. And God does not work to give us credit for anything. God works to get all the credit. And as Christians, we've got to settle in there and we've got to remember that. God works in churches and through you so that at the end of the day, your friends and family aren't impressed with you. We're impressed with this church, but that they're impressed with God and what God can do. Notice what he says here. First, he calls it the riches of his grace. God is rich in grace. Paul uses this word rich throughout the book of Ephesians. I encourage you today, a little, little homework, a little something fun you could do today. Look at how many times he uses the word rich or riches in this letter. And how he always and often applies it to the gl glorious grace of God. Paul wants to make clear that you understand something about God's grace. Because if you understand anything about your sin and the shame and guilt we just talked about, then you've got to look at the balances here. I know how wicked I am. I know how vile I am. I know how unworthy I am. And then I look at how rich God is in his grace. His grace is abundant, unending. It is a well that never runs dry. His grace is always there. It is abundant. He is rich in grace. And he lavishes it upon us. I love that word, lavish. He pours it out abundantly without measure. He smears it all over us. That's what he does in our redemption. It's a sweet reminder to know that God saves to put his character on display. Paul will write in chapter 2 that we are saved by grace and not by works. By grace you've been saved. Brothers and sisters, this is the basis of our redemption Thus, we are humbled this morning to know that we've been redeemed by grace and not by works. 
of all people in all the world, we must be the most humble. Grace. Grace given. Grace received. It comes in and it goes right back out. Therefore, as a congregation, we need to be gracious with one another. Patient, long-suffering. Understanding we're all sinners in need of a Savior. Understanding this one truth. That that brother or sister you're unwilling to reconcile with. He was redeemed by the blood of Christ. Christ died for him. So get over yourself. And reconcile. Put beyond your sin. Put beyond your feelings. And sit at the feet of the cross. And reconcile with your brother and sister. That's what we want to be. People of grace. Showing grace to one another. We praise God for his redemption through the bloody death of Christ. Our redemption not only freed us from sin and guilt. But in verses 9 and 10, we see that it revealed something. Not only is there redemption, but there's revelation. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. 9, not making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Paul here is calling us to praise God for his revelation of our redemption, his revealing, his perfect plan. In verse 9, we see that your redemption reveals God's mysterious plan. The word mysterion, Paul uses without, uh, throughout this letter to emphasize a number of points. First, we see that it emphasizes that nobody could have figured this out. A mystery implies you can't figure it out. It's a secret that only the person who created the plan knows it. And what Paul is saying is, is that God's plan of redemption was a secret. No one knew about it. It was a surprise when it was revealed. In other words, the Old Testament authors and prophets foreshadowed Christ's coming, but they did not fully anticipate all that would be revealed through Christ. Now, there's sufficient evidence to come to the conclusions we come to about the gospel but the Old Testament fell short in giving us the, the HD, you know, the 4K now, picture of who God is in Christ. Another emphasis in the letter is it points to God's salvation from beginning to end. In other words, it's the idea that he is the one who brings it about. God is the one who reveals the mystery He's the one who's unfolding the plan. And then also in this letter, you'll see Paul uses this word mystery. And this one here blew everybody away, right? This is what shocked everyone. That text we read in 2 Samuel about the redemption of Israel is expanded to include Gentiles. And Paul writes in chapter 2 to say this great mystery is this, is that God has taken the Jews... And the Gentiles, and he's made them one in Christ. There's no longer Jew and Gentile. 
black, white, and Asian. There's no longer rich and poor. There's no longer educated and uneducated. There's one in Christ. One. One body. One hope. It's one in Christ. The mystery reveals through the gospel. Paul will say it this way, that every time the gospel is preached, the mystery is let loose. And pray for me, he says, that the open of my mouth may be so that I would boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is a mystery. It's a mystery. It reveals who God is and who we are in Christ. It's a secret, but no longer. But what's the point of this revelation? It comes in verse 9. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. In other words, the purpose of this revelation is Jesus, our great Redeemer. It's more about who than it is what. The mystery is about the who, which is Jesus. God worked in such a way in eternity past and unfolded through human history his plan of redemption to point to one great unifying singular redeemer, Jesus Christ. All that God the Father has been doing is pointing to Jesus, his son. He wanted all the world to sing praises to his son. In other words... Our redemption is wrapped up in a cosmically large, divinely inspired, triune God who is, who is loving itself. Father, Son, and Spirit just loving on each other. And thereby wrapping us up in this divine love. Friends, this is why we are not surprised to learn that the nature of our redemption is more about God than it is us. Our redemption is more about God and telling the world who God is than it is about us. It is not about us. This church is not about us. The Bible is not about you. You can read yourself into that Bible all you want. But brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, the Bible is about God. And about His redemption of sinners. Not your amazing plan of self-improvement. And then comes verse 10. Verse 10 is the Mount Everest of the Bible. At least one of them. There's only one Mount Everest, and, and this, is, this is it. Your redemption reveals the purpose of all human history. Your redemption reveals why God created and why God saves. Look with me again at verse 10. It was a plan... For the fullness of time, that means when time was complete, 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Well, who's the him there? The him is Jesus. God the Father made a plan. He worked it out in human history. He worked it out redeeming sinners. And that plan was pointing to a a pinnacle point. That is the supremacy of Christ over all things. The consummation of Christ over all things. Mathematicians often refer to the bottom line of the equation. The sum total. Accountants refer to the bottom line. At the end of the day, how much money do we have? What's the bottom line? Paul says, the bottom line of all of God's activity is the supremacy of Christ over all things. This is what we heard from our brother earlier in Colossians chapter 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. And Christ is before all things. And in Christ all things hold together. And Christ is the head of the body of the church. Christ is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead. That in everything Christ might be preeminent. For in Christ all, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Christ to reconcile to God the Father all things. Whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. God works all things so at the end of the day, Jesus is big and Jesus is praised. Our redemption causes us to revel in this revelation. To be in awe of what God has done in Christ. Friends, this is what gets us up to sing in the morning. This is what celebrates us. We have been set free. And we have been included in a cosmically eternal plan for which gives glory to the Son. The eternal Son of God is praise. Our redemption is to the praise of His glorious grace. His revelation is to the praise of His glorious grace. From revelation to redemption, all is to His glory. I love symphony music. I love well-crafted and well-orchestrated symphony music. Stories are being told through the music. It's communicating. And in every finely crafted symphony, there comes a point when the orchestra begins to build. If you've been listening to the the ensemble and you begin to be drawn into the melody and to the beat. And as you sit listening, you're compelled to listen as the music grows louder and louder. It draws you into the music. Your heart beats a little faster. You wake up maybe. at some point in the orchestra, through all of the various movements and the changes in tempo and the changes throughout as it moves back and forth, at some point the orchestra begins to build. The music begins to grow louder and louder as it reaches its crescendo. That pinnacle point. 
From there it will begin to regress. There it will begin to die and fade away and come to some resolution. But that highest point, Every note in the symphony has been building to that point. Every beat has been beating to that point. Everything about the symphony was going to that one point. Everything from forwards looking backwards was about that one point in the symphony. What Paul says here is the consummation of Christ is God's great crescendo in his redemptive plan. That the cross sits as the pinnacle point of all of God's work from eternity past to eternity future. That all of God's work before any molecule was formed to the generations who came after. Everything was about Christ. So Christ returns and gathers his church. All of our beat is to that. Everything we do is to that point. It's all of this. To the praise of God's glorious grace in Christ. Let us worship him for all eternity. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray today that you would seal us by your word. Build your congregation through the preaching of your word. Father, may we see that our sin and guilt has been forgiven Through the death of Christ, we've been redeemed. Let us sing it. Let us us have joy today knowing that we have been redeemed. We've been set free from the tyranny of sin. We've been set free to fight against sin. Let us not be like the ancient Israelites and return to our sin. Let us live for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.